0: Well, as Dr. Spivey mentioned at the beginning of this service, we're in the next to last message in our series of the Scarlet Thread of Redemption. We started about fourteen months ago, and um, we are putting the finishing touches on on this series, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the truths that I have either been uh, refreshed by uh, to my memory that I might have learned from a long time ago and are reminded in things, plenty of things that I've learned throughout this series. And, and we are blessed to know as God's children, we are redeemed for an inheritance. We uh, have been redeemed by the love and the blood of, of Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to give a review, an overview of what we have done just because that's really going to uh, take place in in certain way next week when Dr. Spivey closes this series out. But I do want to remind us of a few things uh, in, in this series. Now, way back, way back when we started this series, I preached on Genesis three, and I know that each of you hang on to every word I say. So you, I'm sure you remember, but just in case you you don't, just in case you don't remember, uh, I I mentioned in that sermon Genesis three that in a narrative, in a good story, in a good narrative, you have characters in a story. Obviously, you have certain certain aspects within a story, within a narrative, uh, if it's going to be good, that it has to have. Uh, One of the things being, one of the aspects is a plot, obviously. There has to be some sort of storyline. There has to be a certain type of setting, certain characters, protagonists, antagonists. Uh, This was, I said, a little over a year ago, but the truth remains from Genesis to Revelation, in a good narrative, in a good story, has to have these things. And what also, I didn't mention this in that sermon, but I'll mention it in this one, something that a good story has to have is, well, not necessarily has to have, but it, it helps, is a lot of times you'll notice what is mentioned in the beginning, even though it might be sort of mentioned in passing, has a way of coming up again. Many instances in the end, but all throughout, and that's what we've seen in this series. We've seen uh, messages of redemption throughout this series, but particularly a good story brings something that was in the beginning up again in the end. And I, I noticed this as I was studying this passage that many things that were brought up in Eden, before the fall, are brought up again in the passage that we are going to look at uh, this evening. So as we read this, this passage in Revelation 21 and 22, we'll look at the first four verses in 21 and the first five verses in 22. We'll sort of go back and forth uh, from each of these chapters just to uh, get a glimpse of what John is writing here. But as we do that, you you should notice that there are going to be certain things that come up that that make you say, that sounds familiar, or that looks familiar. We've already covered this in in a way, and as you should, because it it is uh, brought up again. But before we go into the text, I want us to just do a small uh, backdrop to what John has seen in the visions that he has been given and written down. Uh, this is not an in-depth study of Revelation by any stretch of the imagination. But the previous chapter, couple chapters, we find that John sees the coming of Christ, the imminent return of the Son of God, that He is returning. It ta- he he says that he sees the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire. You know, these have they've caused. Uh, they've wreaked so much havoc, more so than our world has ever seen. And and we, in the history of of earth, the planet earth, we've seen so many things, so many uh, destructive things in our history, but they will cause problems and wreak havoc more so than any other period uh, in the history of humanity. But John says they are going to be thrown to the lake of fire. Satan is bound, and then he ultimately will be destroyed. And then we have the day of judgment where Christ judges every man, woman, boy, and girl uh, who has ever lived. And then we come to our text in Revelation 21. Now, our uh, brother John here has seen a lot of things in this book of Revelation several things that seem very frightening, several things that seem uh, just plain terrifying. So he finally receives this vision of what is to come, and it is some good news. Not just some good news, it is the greatest news that he encounters. So as I said, we're going to go back and forth a little bit in this text uh, in Revelation 21 and 22 to kind of break it down Um as we discuss this new heaven and this new earth that will come to pass someday. So we read in verse 1 of chapter 21, John starts off by saying, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. So we're shown in this text that according to Scripture, the universe, the world as we know it, will pass away. There's no ambiguity in that. It's pretty clear that John says a new heaven is brought forth. Why? Because the first heaven and the first earth passed away. So uh, why, why does this happen? Well, if you look throughout the story of the Bible, throughout uh, passages and this narrative, this meta-narrative, as we have mentioned, referred to it as several times, you know that after the fall, when God restores something or when God does something, he does not leave things as they are. A, a, a perfect example of this is yourself and, and me. If, if those of us who have trusted in Christ as our salvation, he does not just save us and leave us there. I think oftentimes we as believers get caught in thinking that way, well, I'm saved. And, and you know, if you believe in Christ, if you've trusted in him, you are. But often we, we limit ourselves to just that, well, I've been saved but God doesn't leave us where we are. It's a constant transformation. We are being transformed what into the image of Christ. That's the goal. So he doesn't just leave us where we are and the same thing will happen with this new heaven and new earth. What we see will one day pass away and we will see a new heaven and a new earth. Something that's interesting though is at the end of verse one we find says, and there is no longer any sea. So he sees a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. Now, as as you read this book, as you read Revelation, you realize it's apocalyptic literature. Some things are literal, some things are not. There's a lot of imagery. There's so many things you have to take into account when you read this book. And I think that's one reason why it it fascinates so many people for one thing, as it should. Uh, It's also another reason why it confuses so many people. I can't tell you how many times I have thought I understood something in Revelation and I'm reading it and I leave more confused than whenever I go back into it. And the reason is, is because I was probably ignorant to what Revelation had to say. And then I realized, wow, this is a lot more vast of a book than I thought. Uh, I mean, throughout this week, as I was studying it, there would be several times I'd talk to Sierra about it, thinking, man, isn't this amazing? And then I'd turn right back around and say, isn't this confusing? Uh, There's so many different aspects to this book. And and one of, the, one of the interesting things that I find, at least, is at the end of verse one, and I know there are different interpretations of this, I'm sure, but it says, and there is no longer any sea. And I got to thinking of that. Why would there not be any sea, because you think about it, when God created the heavens and the earth, the sea wasn't created after the fall. It's not like uh, the fall happened and then the sea was created. So it's it's there's nothing wrong with sea, just like just like work, and we'll get into that later. Work is not um, a result of the fall. So why does he say there's no longer any sea? What what's what's the point of that? Well, I did some reading and and it it. Was interesting to me, at least, when you think of the historical context of this passage, and you think of the culture in that day, and even going back all the way to the Old Testament. Many times, the sea was referred to chaos. You know, you you see people get lost at sea, or you know, there's so much unknown in the sea and it, it brings chaos, destruction, people getting lost at sea, people being stranded out at sea, and they're driving themselves crazy, they drink the water, you know, and it's, it's toxic to them, it kills them. So what is John necessarily saying here? Well, I personally think, and I could be wrong, but what I think is the bigger picture of what John is saying, whether or not there's gonna be a sea or not, is there's no there's not going to be any more chaos. There's no longer going to be destruction on in this new heaven and this new earth. Whether there's gonna be a sea or not, there will no longer be confusion, chaos, destruction, unknown. All will be at peace. And that's what I think John, the, the main focus of this passage is alluding, alluding to, All will be tranquil, will have peace and tranquility. So we see here, because he also mentions in chapter 22 that he showed me a river. So there's definitely water in this new heaven and new earth. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the lamb. Now, I mentioned earlier in a good story, in a good narrative, you see things that are, brought up in the beginning that take place at the end. And so we'll notice in the upcoming verses that there are certain things that happen in the Garden of Eden that we see brought up again. And, and here's one of these things. We find in verse 2 of chapter 21, as we go back, he says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So there's several resemblances of Eden here. Uh, Previously, what we just read in chapter 22, I'm having Elias work hard with these slides going back and forth, but we see that the throne of God, uh, there's a river flowing, and in the middle of its street on either side of the river was what? The tree of life. You have the tree of life. Well, in that in the Garden of Eden? So it's there, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit, he goes on, we'll cover that in a second. But, and then he says, I see a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. This description of this new Jerusalem is what? What's it like? A wedding. Is there a marriage ceremony in the Garden of Eden? Yes, there is. What happens when the first marriage takes place? when God creates man, then he creates woman. What, is, what does Adam say? He it, he breaks out into poetry. The first almost love song, if you will, he says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. And and it, you see the beautiful poetry in the Hebrew. It, it It's magnificent. So it's at the first marriage ceremony. You have Adam and Eve, but then at this time in this new heaven and this new earth, God says that, or John records that this is going to be ready. This new Jerusalem will be ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So you have the tree of life. You have this marriage ceremony and it says this new Jerusalem. You look throughout the history of Israel, of Jerusalem, and and then even before throughout scripture. And then when uh, you look in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, you see what the people of Israel go through. You see what Jerusalem goes through. We currently see what they're going through right now. There's so much chaos, so much destruction. Even in the days of Jeremiah, the city is basically ruined. and, And even in today's what what is happening uh, with Jerusalem and Israel today, it, it's heartbreaking. So you can't hardly even imagine through the history of this nation that there is going to be a Jerusalem like this, a new Jerusalem. Jesus even speaks of the people of Jerusalem in Matthew chapter twenty three verse twenty uh, verse thirty seven he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills? who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to do what? Gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we see passages like this where Jesus says, I, I wanted to gather you under my wing. So there's plenty of passages like this we see the destruction and, and the turmoil brought forth in Israel and in Jerusalem. Then, today, and as I mentioned, it makes you wonder how in the world could this be made new again? Well, it can only be made new by the one who is in this marriage ceremony, and that is Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus. The one who pay the dowry in his own blood that we discussed a few weeks ago when he was on the cross paying the debt that we owed. That's how he is going to restore things. That's how he is able to restore Jerusalem. And, and to think of all the chaos and hostility that is going on there right now and that one day it's going to be the capital city of the new heaven. Only God can do something as miraculous as that. He says in verse in the twenty-second chapter, talking about the tree of life, we see another, uh, more imagery to the Garden of Eden. It says bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will be healing brought forth because of this fallen world. Healing is brought forth to these nations. This word. Healing is actually where we get the word therapeutic. There will be so much comfort in this new heaven that it almost seems to us too good to be true. You know, that saying that if something is too good to be true, it probably is, that I've, I've grown up hearing that you know, all my life. Well, we don't have to worry about this being too good to be true, no matter how much it seems like it. We see all this eternal uh, language and the imagery that is what is to come compared to uh, the Garden of Eden, and it's it's astounding, it's amazing, but to me, I think the most exciting thing is what we see in the upcoming verses that our King will be with us, just as He is today. If you know Jesus, if you know the Lord, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, but our King will physically be with us. Look at verse three in chapter twenty-one. He writes, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. What John writes here, does it sound familiar to something else he's written? Think about it for a second. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is Among men. Now, he does point it out again in the same chapter in verse 22. He says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. There's no temple in this new heaven. Why? Because Jesus is present. But where else does John allude to this? Now, it's not to the same exact event, but if you look in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, what does he say? on his first coming. When he comes the first time, when when Jesus came the first time, in verse 14 of chapter 1 of the gospel of John, John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he's done this before. Jesus has come to the earth, dwelt with man before this, this word, tabernacle, where we get the word tabernacle, tabernacled himself with us, established his tent and dwelt with us. So, He says, he dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. The first time he came to dwell among us was to sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. But now we see when he comes again, it's not for that purpose. It's to reign forever. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He's dwelling with us once again he will come and dwell with man and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Can you imagine that day? The comfort that we will encounter that Jesus himself will dwell with us unrestrained, we will have unrestrained fellowship, we won't be tainted by sin, we won't have any heartache, pain, Failure that, and we'll cover that in a second as well. Christ will be with us and we will physically be with him. Like like Eden, the Garden of Eden, what happened? God walked with them when? In the cool of the day. Now, as I make these comparisons from the Garden of Eden to this new heaven and new earth, we can't help, but many times, especially in our present time, because we are not, obviously not in the new heaven yet, it's easy to feel drawn to the Garden of Eden, to Genesis 1 and 2. And many speak in terms of this future new heaven uh, and new earth as a return to Eden. But I think when we think of it that way, if it's a return to Eden, it's almost a reduction of what is to come. Because what is to come is better. What is going to happen, what is going to take place is even better than what Adam and Eve experienced. Because unlike, and I think Dr. Spivey mentioned this last week, because this scarlet thread of redemption wasn't established in Genesis 1. When was it established? Before the foundations of the world. So it's not as if when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they sinned, God stepped back and said, I did not see that coming. I I wasn't expecting that and he needs to have a meeting with the Son and the Holy Spirit to figure out, okay, now how do we react? How do we respond to this sin of my creation? That's not what happened. That's, that's not the God we serve. He's not a reactionary God. He's all-knowing. He's all good. He's all holy. So from the beginning, he knew this would happen, and he was in control of this the whole time. So Eden was never intended to be the end. It was heading to something and it was heading to this new heaven and new earth so when we think about what adam and eve had had as great as it was we get to not look back and say man i wish i wish we could have had that we get to as believers look forward and say i cannot wait till this new heaven comes down to earth and i get to physically be with the one who redeemed me. That's the comfort that we have. That's what we get to look forward to as believers, because as we see in verse 3, he is going to dwell with us, and we are going to be with him. And not only that, something else we see that seems to be too good to be true, but is not, it says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. All the things that grieve us, all the things that have hurt us, all the things that bring pain in our lives will all be taken away. As as I've read uh, just certain commentaries on this, People, I think, like to get lost in the weeds in, in this text and say, well, there's not going to be any tears in heaven. This is a It doesn't matter to me. What I see is that there's not going to be any sort of sadness in heaven. I don't care if I cry in heaven because if, if there's a tear in heaven and God wipes it away, to me, that's almost even more comforting than if there were no tears. The fact that Jesus is just going to comfort us and say all has been made right because of me, that's what I get to look Forward to. As we study this new heaven and new earth, our culture has done, unfortunately, a really good job of depicting what heaven is, and many times believers fall prey to it. I know I have in the past, of what heaven is like. You know, when you think of heaven, based on whatever you might reading novels or seeing movies or, or what have you, what do they depict heaven as? Clouds. Clouds. You're sitting in a cloud, what? Doing what? Singing, playing a harp. I love music, but oh man, that's, that would not be the way I would want to spend a turn. I remember as a kid thinking, uh, even even as a young believer in Christ, sitting in church and singing, and enjoying the worship service, but thinking in my head, even as a 12-year-old, man, I can't wait for heaven, but I'm going to get bored pretty quick. I mean, I'm sorry. And I remember thinking, well, it's better than the alternative, but you, you, get, this, <laughs> you get this view of what heaven's going to be like, and you're like, well, I'll be with Jesus. That's great, but I'm going to get tired of playing the harp. I mean, I get calluses trying to play the guitar, and I don't know if there'll be calluses in heaven, but I was thinking this is not going to be the greatest time. I'd much rather enjoy playing outside with my friends. That's what I was thinking. This, that's more entertaining. That, that's what the culture kind of has us think of what heaven is. And when you talk to people, even some believers who still think that, they say the same thing. Man, I, I just don't—I don't have much to look forward to in this heaven but we see in our text, that's not what it's going to be like in the slightest. We see in chapter 22, what does it say? In verse three, there will no longer be any curse. So there won't be any crime or no more pain, no more suffering. The former things have passed away and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his bond servants will what? Serve, serve him. We are going to serve him unencumbered, unrestricted, not tainted by sin. We will get to enjoy him forever and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So we will get to work for our Lord, work for our King. We will get to serve him and that should excite you. The talents and the gifts God has given you, what makes you think that you won't have them in this new heaven and new earth? Why would that pass away? God has created you for a purpose to glorify him And when you experience his love, his grace, and you trust in him, you turn from your sins and trust in him to be the Lord, Savior, and master of your life, you look to him, you have this inheritance, you will be in this new heaven someday, and you will serve your king forever. That's what we'll get to do. We won't be sitting in clouds. We won't be... Now, I know there's going to be music in heaven and I can't wait for that, but we're not going to be sitting in clouds playing harps. We're going to be working for him. We're going to be worshiping him. We're going to be loving him forever. And if that doesn't excite you as a believer, I don't know what will. I cannot wait for that day to take place. We will get to work for him with our talents, with our gifts. And then we see finally in verse five, and there will no longer be any night And there will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. We hear that oftentimes that there will not be any need for the sun, the light because what? The light is Jesus. I remember as I was studying this, I was reminded of him we used to sing in church growing up. <clears throat> and, you know, you always like to look back at a simpler time, and I'm thinking myself sitting in church, remembering my dad lead the music, and us singing this song, and he was holding that hymn book, you know, before he had glasses and holding it way out here because he was far-sighted. And so when I was a kid and I'd play church and I would act like I'd lead music, I'd always hold the book like that because I'm thinking that's what my dad does, That's what I, that's how you lead music. And I remember one of my favorite songs that we sang was The Light of the World is Jesus. Do y'all remember that song? And uh, it goes like the whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. And it goes on to say, like sunshine at noonday, his glory shone in. Going on says, no darkness have we who in Jesus abide. We walk in the light when we follow our guide." And then what does he go on to say? No need of the sunlight in heaven. We're told the light of the world is Jesus. The Lamb is the light, and the city of gold. The light of the world is Jesus. Come to the light; tis shining for thee. Sweetly the light has dawned up on me. Once I was blind, but now I can see. The light of the world is Jesus. That's true today in this fallen world, and it's going to be true in the new heaven. There will no need for the sun or any type of light because the light of the world is Jesus. And so what I have to ask you tonight, whether you are here or you're watching online, is where do you fall into this redemption story? Are you able to say that I have come to this light that is shining for me? because the light of the world is Jesus. We've seen that from Genesis all the way to now to Revelation, that the light of the world is Jesus. The only way you have hope, the only way you have life, the only way that you can come to this light is to come to Jesus by turning from your sin and turning to him. We get sick of this world sometimes, don't we? Many times. You watch the news for five minutes and you'll it's easy to get pretty depressed if you're not uh, keeping an eternal perspective in focus. But as I said earlier, let's not long for Eden in Genesis one and two. Let's long for the new heaven. Let's long for him. Let's long not for what Adam and Eve had, but what we will be able to experience. The new, the the true and the better Adam, the one who was on the cross and said, it is finished. And the one who said, I go to prepare a place for you. That's who we worship. And if you have trusted in him, you take part in this redemption story because he shed his blood for you. And because of that, and because of you trusting in him, you will get to experience this new heaven and this new earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for what you have shown us in your word that you have prepared a place for us and that we don't have to look back at Genesis 1-2 and say, man, I wish I could have been there, but we get to look forward to this new heaven and this new earth that you have provided, that you you will provide for us and that we will get to physically be with you, serve you and worship you without in, without sin, without anything that will hinder us from full access and full worship and service to you. And I pray throughout this whole series that we have... uh, gone through in this scarlet thread of redemption that we will be reminded every time we open your word that you have redeemed us for an inheritance and that anyone who has yet to trust in you, that if they will do that, if they will turn from their sin and turn to you their only hope and their only source of salvation, realizing that the light of the world is Jesus, that you will illumine their eyes and illumine their soul and bring it to life, that they too will get to experience this new heaven and new earth. May this radically change us as we look forward to this new heaven. May it radically change us to live for you faithfully today in faithful obedience because we love you and we have this to look forward to and want others to experience the same. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.